Hello, everyone. It's good to see you again.、Um, I hope you all had a good week and that you're well in mind, body, and soul. We want to share a few、um, gifts during this time, and one is called Right Now Media, and it's a free subscription that we're providing for you, for your friends and your family, for anyone with this link. Basically, you can have access to thousands of Christian video resources to help you with Bible studies, navigating relationships, and more. And so you can just go to that、uh, link,、um, or that QR code will open it up for you. And anyone with this link can create a private account, and you can start right, watching right away on your laptop, your tablet, or phone.、Um, and this is a gift from Melbourne City Adventist Church to all of you during this time. So I hope,、um, yeah, you can get on there and explore and see what kinds of videos they have. The second gift we have for you is、um, the Live More Happy. Um, program. It's a ten-week program optimizing emotional、uh, health, and so it's、uh, usually seventy-five dollars. But again, it's offered for free during this time. Each week, you basically spend about twenty minutes watching a fun,、um, informative video about emotional wellness,、um, and then. There'll be a challenge for the week,、um, and then our group will get together and share how we're going with the challenge and encourage each other to go through it. And we're going to be starting the first of May, so this is the last week you have to sign up.、Um, so just simply message me and let me know that you want to join,、um, and then I'll send you the registration link. And so、um, again, this is the last week to sign up, so make sure you get onto that、um, this week. This week,、um, I've had the chance to catch up with some friends from the U.S., and it was really nice to, you know, I haven't talked to them in about eight years,、um, and we were just saying how nice it'll be to do this again, you know, and not have to wait another eight years or wait for another pandemic, but to, you know, really intentionally connect.、Um, and so I'm glad that we had the opportunity to do that. I'm also grateful for the sacrifices of many who have given their lives for the well-being of others.、Um, all the frontline workers doing their best to keep everyone safe during this time, and of course, it was heartbreaking this week to hear of the Victorian police officers who lost their lives. And we grieve for their families and loved ones, and we really want to remember them in our prayers. And of course, today is Anzac Day, and we want to remember all those who have given their lives for service、um, to their country,、uh, for their for their countrymen and women, and、um, all that they have done. And so, we want to、um, have a moment at the end of the sermon. We're going to have a minute of silence to to remember them and all others who have given their lives. This week, I was talking to my friend Celia、um, and wondering what to preach. And you know, during this pandemic, I've preached about the importance of、um, having patience, learning patience, finding hope,、uh, living with an abundance rather than a scarcity mindset.、Um, and over Easter weekend, I shared the story of Job and what it means that we have a Redeemer who lives. And so I was thinking, okay, what else can I share during this time that will you know inspire us and encourage us and challenge us? And Celia was gave a great suggestion. She said, "What about prison letters? You know, what better time? Here we are in lockdown. Many of us are getting cabin fever. So, what better time to learn from the various people who were literally imprisoned? And you know, if you think about it, so many of them did extraordinary things with their time, despite their very confined、uh, situations." You know, we think about the first-century Christian missionary Paul, who wrote many of the letters to the to the churches from his house arrest in Rome. You know, the Philippians, the Book of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians,、um, uh, Philemon—all these letters、um, we have today as part of the New Testament Bible because of his situation. John, the disciple of Jesus, was exiled on the island of Patmos, completely social distance from everyone else, and it was there that he received revelations of Jesus that we have、um, in the Bible today. 
think about all the people in history who were in prison、um, and who wrote extraordinary things. John Bunyan, who wrote *The Pilgrim's Progress*, Martin Luther King Jr. and his letter from、uh, Birmingham Jail. Of course, Nelson Mandela and his hundreds of letters while he was in prison for 27 years.、Um, of course, all the Holocaust victims who wrote、um, diaries and letters and, and books. And Frank Elie Wiesel, Corey Ten Boom. So many followers of God have often been at odds with the society, with the leadership, the government, and they were imprisoned for their、uh, faith, for their race, for who they were, their identity, and their allegiance to God. And one such individual was Richard Wambrand. Now, Richard was born in 1909 in Romania to a Jewish family, the youngest of four boys. His father, a dentist, died in the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, and so the boys grew up extremely poor. But there were many books in the house,、um, and Richard grew up reading everything inside, including a lot of Voltaire. And I studied French literature, so I know what Voltaire is like. And by the end of,、uh, by the age of fourteen, Richard、um, became a staunch atheist. And a lot of the, you know, books he was reading on philosophy was basically, you know, influencing him towards that. He was extremely intelligent.、Um, he was fluent in nine languages, and he worked as a stockbroker. He was young and handsome and charming, and so he spent time attending、uh, parties and nightclubs and cabarets, pursuing pleasure and health.、Uh, sorry, pursuing pleasure and wealth and and women. Now, at the age of twenty-six,、uh, he married Sabina Oster, who had much in common with him. She was also of Jewish background, but、um, she also was an atheist. She wanted nothing to do with religion, and she also loved to party and she loved the nightlife of Bucharest. And so、um, they were a perfect pair. They got married and they were enjoying life. You know, they didn't want to have children because they just wanted to pursue pleasure and,、um, do, and be free to do whatever they wanted to do. Then, in nineteen thirty-eight. Thanks to a man named Christian Wolfsky, Wolfskies, first Richard and then Sabina became Christian, and then Richard became ordained as a minister. Now, during World War II, Richard and Sabina saw、um, opportunities for evangelism amongst the occupying German forces. So they preached in bomb shelters to political leaders and soldiers, anyone and everyone they met. They sheltered and hid many Jews and Gypsies,、um, helping them escape and saving many, many people's lives. Richard and Sabina were repeatedly arrested and beaten by the Nazi and nearly executed. Sabina actually lost、uh, both her parents and two of her sisters and her brother, basically her entire, almost entire family, to the concentration camps. Despite all this,、um, when the you know World War II was over and the German Nazi are now fleeing Romania,、um, Richard and Sabina sheltered them、um, so that they would not be killed. And when you know the German Nazi asked, "Why are you sheltering me? You know, I'm part of the the group that killed your whole family and persecuted and arrested and beat you." And she said, "God loves all people, and so do we." After World War II ended, the Soviet Union op-、um, occupied Romania. And so the Nazi left, but now the Soviet Union comes in, and the communist、uh, government forced all religious leaders to attend a congress that was broadcast to the whole nation by radio. And over four thousand religious leaders from various denominations vowed allegiance to the communist government. And when it was Richard's、uh, turn, his wife Sabina told him, "Stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ." And Richard was like, "Just you know, you know that if I do that, you're going to lose your husband." And she said, "I don't want to cower for a husband." And he, he got the microphone. He stood up, and he said, 
we need to glorify God and God alone. And of course, they tried to take away the microphone from him, but the entire audience stood up on their feet and clapped. And um, eventually they were able to just yank the power off because he just kept preaching. Richard and Sabrina, as you can understand, had to go underground after this. Um, and they founded a secret community of Christians who were um, not, you know, giving lip service to the Communist Party. And this underground church distributed over one million copies of the Gospels to the Russian troops and helped smuggle Bibles into Russia. Even little uh, Mihai, um, their little son um, that they ended up having, was was helping them, handing out tracts and sharing stories of Jesus whenever he could. You know, the, the Russian troops loved, you know, little children, and he would climb into their laps and he would hand little tracts to them about Jesus. Now, on February 29th, um, 1948, Richard was kidnapped by the secret police um, and imprisoned. He ended up being in prison for a total of 14 years. Um, he got out a couple times in between, but a total of 14 years he was in prison. And many of those years, Sabina had no idea where he was, whether he was even alive. During that time, he suffered horrific tortures and brutality. For three of those years, he was locked in a solitary cell 30 feet underground with no windows and just a little pipe where air came through. He was barely given any food, at most one slice of bread per day. He had no contact with anyone except for his torturers who came every evening. And they tortured him because they wanted him to give up the names of his church members. They wanted him to give up the names of other pastors like him. But amazingly, despite all the torture and all the brainwashing they tried to do, over the 14 years, he never betrayed a single person. In 1950, his wife Sabina was also arrested, um, and she was forced to serve as a laborer um, on the Danube Canal project for three years, which left their 10-year-old son Mihai alone and homeless. And um, thankfully, some Christian friends took him in and risked death and imprisonment themselves to take care of this little boy. Finally, in December 1965, two organizations paid a $10,000 ransom to allow this family to leave Romania. So Richard, Sabina, and their son, Mihai, devoted, uh, were able to leave Romania. They ended up finally in the U.S., and they devoted the rest of their lives to helping persecuted Christians and sharing the gospel of Jesus. They traveled all over the world, and in 1990, after 25 years, they finally went back to Romania when they were able to do so, and they preached and shared the love of Jesus to the people there in such a way that... Um, I believe it was in 2006 when the Romanian government asked the people to name the most influential Romanian, the greatest Romanian of all history, and he was ranked number fifth in that list. Between Sabina, Richard, and Mihai, they have written over 30 books, uh, some of the most famous ones. Um, I, I read three of Richard's books this week, and I was so riveting, I couldn't put them down. Um, one of his most famous ones is called Tortured for Christ. Um, another one is With God in Solitary Confinement. And the third is The Man Who Came Back. There's many, many more, but those are the three that I read, and I would highly recommend them to you. Sabina um, died in 2000 and Richard in 2001. Um, they shared Jesus with millions of people around the world in their lifetime. And um, after their books um, were translated into over 80 languages, they continue to make an impact today. Now, while Richard was in solitary confinement, you know, can you imagine three years of solitary confinement? And he said that the soldiers um, put felt 
soles on the bottom of their shoes so that even they're walking around would make no noise because they just wanted to really torture these people and just give them complete silence. And so complete silence day and night for three years. And because he's underground, he has no concept of, you know, is the sun out? He doesn't even know when day and night was. And the only thing that was regular was the torture. And so that's, that's how he kept time was how many, you know, um, torture sessions he had had. And this is how he kept saying every night, um, he would compose a sermon and he would compose the sermon, um, edit it and, and memorize it word for word. And then he would deliver it, um, to, you know, the prison, but he would deliver it to God basically was his audience. And he, but he also delivered it to his church, um, who he was so far away from. And, um, he did this every day. So he would compose a new sermon and deliver it every single day. When he was finally out of prison, because he has an amazing memory, he was able to recall more than 350 sermons word by word, um, a selection of which he wrote in his books. Now, here's a passage from one of his sermons that really got to me. He wrote, this is from one of his sermons on duty. He said, in prison, there is a feeling of being released from duty, especially when you are in solitary confinement. Who has the right to ask anything from you when you are in such terrible circumstances? But the imperative of life knows no excuses. Duty is a categorical demand, whether you are in happiness or unhappiness. Mocked, hungry, jailed, sick, falsely charged, tortured, alone, you have to serve the highest. I know my duty. It does not insist so much in doing things. My duty is to become more and more myself. When God formed me in the hidden place, he made me to be myself to be in my own way, the herald of his glory, to be unique as God himself is unique. And what if I am tortured? Christ saved a robber while he was on the cross. That is, concentrate upon our single aim to develop a heavenly character, which by contagion will fill God's heaven with men, and I would add, and women. So there he was, right? 30 feet underground in a small, cold, lonely cell, tortured and separated from his family. But he was wondering how he could become more like Jesus, right? How he could serve God and share him with other people. And that's so amazing to me that the confinement, the restrictions, the torture, they did not define him. He did not let those define him. But instead, he found his identity and his mission in Christ, no matter what his circumstances you know, one way that he served God was by tapping Morse codes through the walls to his fellow prisoners who were also Christian. And he encouraged them with messages of comfort and hope. And they also blessed him with their stories. And they tapped it out in Morse code. It would have taken them a long time. And he wrote, later wrote some of their stories. And here's one that um, I want to share with you. My brethren to my right and left have sometimes brought their torturers to Christ. A communist officer beating a Christian prisoner with a rubber truncheon put his stick aside and asked, What is it about you? How is it that your face is shining? You have something like a halo around your head. How can you look at me so lovingly? I would never love a man who jailed and beat me. How is it that you can obey the foolish commandment of your Christ to love your enemy? And the Christian answered, I am not obeying a commandment. It is not that I love you only because Jesus orders me to. Jesus has given me a new heart and a new character. If I wanted to hate you, I would no longer be able to do so. A nightingale cannot sound like a crow because it is a nightingale and not a crow. So a Christian can only love. That rubber truncheon has remind, remained put aside forever. So with this incredible, in, 
experience that these prisoners, these Christians had, that experience that Paul, the first Christian missionary to the Gentiles had, which was not I, but Christ who lives in me, right? So it's, it's none of the good things we, we do, none of the bad things we do, you know, putting that all aside and saying, not I, but Christ who lives in me. And he's the one who inspires that love. He's the one who enables and empowers that love that we can show to our enemies. And so, you know, this, in, this experience that he and, uh, you know, others had transformed many of the prison guards um, who also became Christians themselves. And, you know, it wasn't all easy. Richard, um, you know, in his books talks about how difficult it was, how, how near broken he became, and how there were times when he, he was almost to the point where he wanted to give up, right? And um, one night he describes, he cried out to God, Lord, you see, I have no one. I have no one. I don't have your written word. I have nothing. And he says, but you have so often in the past spoken to people directly, even to evil people like Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the Christians. And so he says, I have nobody to talk to me. And he said, Lord, will you speak to me? And, you know, he, he says this later. He says it was exceptional circumstances. And in exceptional circumstances, exceptional things happen. And he says, when he said, Lord, you speak to me, he heard an audible voice. Now he expected a word of comfort. He expected something, you know, that, that would encourage his faith. But what he heard was this question, what is your name? Now, when he heard this, Richard says he, he was afraid to speak because he thought, well, if I say, well, he, well, he thought, well, first of all, this is a very strange question, right? Because God knows his name. God knows all things. So why is he asking this? And then Richard reflected that God often asked strange questions. He asked Adam and Eve, where are you? When he knew fully well where they were. He asked Moses, what's in your hand? When Moses was called to lead the Israelites out of slavery. He asked Elijah, what are you doing here? When Elijah was hiding from uh, persecution. And Jesus asked the, the man who was lying by the pool of Bethesda, who was lame. And he asked, Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? And Jesus asked the crowd of people who touched me when there was a woman who touched his cloak um, and became well from her, her illness. So Richard reflects on how God often asks strange questions. And so when God asks him, what is your name? He knows there's something more to this than just God wondering what his actual name was. And, and Richard says he, he was so afraid to answer, my name is Richard, because first of all, the name Richard he knew had, had meaning. And he talked about how, um, you know, Richard was a saint in Christian history who was brave and courageous. And, and Richard thought, I'm not brave and courageous. So I dare not say my name is Richard. And they thought, well, I'm a pastor. But I dare not say I'm a pastor because right now I don't have a flock of people that I'm taking care of. And I feel so unworthy. And so he kind of goes through everything he is, a father, a husband. And he, and he comes to the place where he says finally to, to God, he says, he bows down and he says, Jesus I have no name. Allow me to bear your name. And through that experience, that not I, but Christ living in me, Richard was able to love his enemies. That's how he endured. And I wonder also, you know, this is me reflecting on that question that God asked Richard, what is your name? Immediately for me, I wonder if God was actually 
trying to bring Richard's mind to a time in the Bible, in history, when God actually asked that very same question to someone else. In Genesis chapter 32, we hear of a man named Jacob who had wronged his brother Esau and had run away from home because Esau wanted to kill him. And so for 20 years, Jacob is uh, in exile, um, far from his family, you know, going through various things. And finally, God tells Jacob, I want you to go back home. Now, Jacob knows what that means. That means that he has to go face his brother Esau. So he's afraid. But God tells him, I'm going to take care of you. Go back home. So then Jacob is going home with his, you know, a huge family now, his entourage of servants. And um, as they come near, they send messengers to Esau saying, we come in peace. And then he hears the message back that Esau is coming with an army of 400 men, pretty much to come and destroy him, his family and everyone with him. So Jacob and everyone else with him are terrified. So the night before they're about to, you know, meet Esau and his army, um, Jacob sends everyone ahead across the river and he wants to have some alone time to pray. So this is found in Genesis chapter 32 verses 24 onwards. This left Jacob all alone in the camp and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. And he replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. And in the morning, as Esau you know, and his army are coming, and they see Jacob, because Jacob is in front of all his family, his whole entourage, he's in the very, very front. And Esau sees his brother, whom he hasn't seen in 20 years, no longer a young man. No longer the, the deceitful, you know, guy that he knew him to be. But here's this man now, Jacob, 20 years older, limping, pale from his exhausting night wrestling with God. And Esau's heart goes out to him and he runs to him and he hugs him and they weep together and they reconcile. Jacob had wrestled not just a man, but Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. And through that wrestling with God, where he put all his strength and he, and he realized I'm, I'm putting all my strength, but I can't overcome this man. And he finally realizes this is God himself. And when he realizes that he, he clings on even further because he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And, and even though it was a physically straining time and encounter this wrestling, it wasn't an easy process, but through it all, God gives him this new name, Israel, which means overcomer. So he goes from deceitful to overcomer. And he, he has this new mission and, and also this promise that God is with him. And even though he has that limp forever, right? He's got that scar from that wrestling with God, but he knows for the rest of his life, I saw God face to face. And what a story to tell. I wonder whether God was quoting this story to Richard Wombrand to remind him that he also was not alone. 
and that he also would have the privilege of experiencing God in a, in a closer way than most of us do through the pain and how his life too would be spared to go on to tell that story. When Richard Wombrandt later in 1966 gave evidence to a U.S. Senate inquiry, um, at one point he stripped down to the waist to reveal 18 burn wounds. He had four broken vertebrae as well as many other scars and wounds of which he couldn't even bring himself to talk about. But one thing he would never stop talking about was that despite all those wounds, despite all those scars, he would do it again because of the people he was able to reach. At one point, he was released from prison and he was barely home for a day or two when he prayed, God, if there's someone in prison that I can still reach, send me back. And the very day that he prayed that, he actually was sent back to prison. So altogether, that's why it was 14 years. Richard knew that it was a miracle that he survived. When he finally um, you know, got out of Romania and saw a doctor, the doctor saw that he had tuberculosis. You know, um, His lungs had, had all the scars and remains from tuberculosis, um, all these broken bones and wounds. And the doctor said, how are you alive? Right? How are you alive? So Richard knew that it was a miracle that he was alive, but it's not just the physical stuff that he survived. That's not the real miracle. The real miracle is that he, he emerged from all this. He emerged from the wrestling with God. He emerged from the solitary confinement, the mental torture. He emerged from the soul-crushing uh, experience with love for God and love for all of humanity. In his book, Torture for Christ, Richard wrote, God will judge us not according to how much we endured, but how much we could love. The Christians who suffered for their faith in prisons could love. I am a witness that they could love God and men. What if that was the measure of our success during this pandemic? Not how much we have endured, but how much we have loved. Not how much we have accomplished, but how much we have truly loved those around us, our friends, our, our family, our neighbors, our community, as well as the strangers, as well as those um, who are far away. How much we have loved God. How much do we love this week? We may be restricted by how many people we can um, have physically near us. We might be restricted in how much space there is between us. We might be restricted on how many items we can purchase or when we can leave home. But there is absolutely no limit to how much we can love. There is no limit to the, the countless ways, the creative ways that we can show our love. Whether it's through our phone calls, letters, uh, care packages, you know, people are putting teddy bears and, and, and cheerful things out on their windows and on the sidewalk to, to cheer people up, right? To show love. There's no way um, that we could run out of ways to show that love. In our confinement, we can actually expand our love and especially through our prayers, and that Richard Ron Brown, one thing that he did in addition to composing these sermons is that um, he composed mental kind of letters. He said, St. Paul could write letters when he was in prison. He had ink and parchment. St. John too could write to the churches from his exile on Patmos. We have no paper and no ink, but there is one way of writing which they cannot forbid us, to write with a spirit on the hearts of men, even if they are far from us. 
And and this is what he would do. He would he would think of someone um, that was you know whether a church member or, or or whoever it was. He would think of that person in his mind. He would picture their face, and he would be very very careful to imagine every detail of their hair, their eyes, their nose. So he would really visualize and imagine that they were in front of him. And then he would compose in his head a message, a letter, a prayer that he wanted for them. And he would edit it and, and really make sure it's perfect, right? He would make, make thoughtful t- time to, to make that message really heartfelt and meaningful. Then he would memorize it and then he would deliver it. And he's still imagining that person in front of him. He would deliver that message to them. And then he would imagine their response, their facial expressions as they received that message. And this is how he prayed for each person. And, and, you know, and then after that, he would, every day, he would do a special one for his wife, Sabina. And Sabina later wrote that she felt it. At certain times of each day, she would feel that, that Richard was saying, I love you. And she would say back out loud, I love you too. And this is exactly how he also prayed for his torturers. He would imagine that he was one of the, one of them. And he would try to imagine their lives. He would try to understand what are the pressures, what are the fears that those torturers are feeling. And he would imagine that were his own. And he would try to look at himself through their eyes. And in this way, he would pray for them with love and forgiveness. Who can you pray for this week with that kind of intensity, with that kind of intentionality to be able to to not just say, oh God, please bless this person, but to, to really you know, write out a beautiful letter, you know, expressing all our hopes and desires for that person, you know, pleading for that person um, on, on their behalf. There was once an old carpenter who lived in the mountain village of Nua. He was a Christian. He had become Christian through a willwright who had shared Jesus with him. And uh, the willwright had been a Jew. And, and so he was so grateful for, for his conversion that he really wanted to share Jesus with a Jew. And for years he prayed, dear God, I, I long to bring a Jew to Christ. And he, he's like, I love Jews because Jesus was a Jew and a Jew converted me. And so I, I long to bring one Jew to Christ. He said, but I'm poor and I'm old and I'm sick and I cannot leave my village. And there isn't a single Jew in this village. So God, please bring a Jew to our village and I will do my best to bring him to Christ. Well, one day a young Jewish couple came to the village. The young man had contracted tuberculosis and his doctor had advised him to go to the countryside to get better, to recover. And of the 12,000 mountain villages in this country, this young couple chose this particular small mountain village where this carpenter lived. The old carpenter and his wife were delighted. Finally, here is a Jew. And, and, and so they, they met this couple and they just showered them with love and kindness. And they shared with them a copy of the New Testament Gospels, the stories of Jesus. Now, the young man had read these before, heard these before, and before he had felt nothing. But this time, something was different. He felt Jesus tugging at his heart. And they didn't know at the time, but the old carpenter and his wife were praying for this couple every day for hours. The young man, and later his wife, became Christian and ended up leading millions of people to Jesus. And their names were Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. And the old carpenter was Christian Wolfsky. Richard later wrote, The Bible he gave me was written not so much in words but in flames of love fired by his prayers. 
we may never know the full effects of our prayers. I don't know if Christian Wolfsky ever got to know what happened to Richard and Sabina and the impact that they have had. We may never know the effects of our prayers for someone, but one thing we know is that prayers do make a difference. Love does make a difference. So this week, let's measure success by how much we love those around us. And let's pray for people. And let's love people, even the strangers that we haven't met yet. Let's pray for them and love them with kindness so that they too can get to know Jesus. As we close, I'd like to take that minute of silence for all those who died giving their lives for the good of others, whether in serving their country or in serving their conscience or serving their community. Let's picture their faces if we can in our minds or at least, you know, the scenes, the names, perhaps you've been to memorials, um, the war memorials, and you've seen, you know, those walls of names. Picture that in your mind. And let's take a moment, a minute of silence to, to remember their sacrifice. And then after the minute of silence, um, I will pray to close. And so I just invite you now to take a minute. Um, and if you could just close your eyes and pray and, and reflect and honor all those who have died for others. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the many people who have given their lives. We pray for their loved ones who are mourning, who are missing them. We pray for the families of the Victorian police officers who lost their lives this week. We pray for their loved ones as they, as they grieve. And we pray that um, you would draw near to them and give them strength. We pray for all the men and women who have given their lives um, in military or peacekeeping operations throughout history and in the present moment. We pray that they will never be forgotten, that we will never forget the price of peace. Father God, we want to thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, that you died for us so that we can live. And we thank you for the extraordinary lives of Richard and Sabina Warmbrand, who gave their lives to sharing the good news that you live despite all the challenges they had to face and have left us a legacy uh, to be inspired by. And Father, we ask for your help that we too can live a not I but Christ life where we measure success by how much we love others around us and help us in this time of confinement or restrictions and limitations not to define ourselves by those things but to think of ways that we can love in unlimited ways, that we can expand our souls by the kind of prayers that we can pray for others, the kind of experiences we can have with you. And so, Father, unsettle us during this time. Take us out of our routine so that we can connect with you and others in a special way. We pray in your son's name. Amen.